0: This is Talking Ears. My name is Frank Wordinger, which is true, but this is actually not Talking Ears. Today we're doing something special. We're gonna be listening in on the most recent episode of the Signal to Noise podcast. Talking Ears co-producer Juan Vasquez and I joined a panel discussion with fellow music audiologist Laura Sinnett and host Chris Leonard to discuss hearing healthcare for their audience, which is primarily audio engineers, front-of-house engineers, monitor engineers, system engineers, and we found the conversation to be so great and useful that we wanted to cross-publish to our listeners. Many thanks to prosoundweb.com and the Signal to Noise podcast hosts for allowing us to do so. And if you like what you're hearing, you may also want to subscribe to the Signal to Noise podcast. It's a great show hosted by fantastic audio professionals, and I applaud their efforts for promoting hearing health care and other health considerations for music industry professionals. Enjoy!
1: You are listening to the Sickleton Noise Podcast on the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network. Supported by RCF. For over 70 years, RCF's passion for perfection is the driving force behind designing professional audio products and creating unique experiences for venues around the globe. The HDL 50A 4K, the latest large format active three-way line array system is no exception learn more at rcf-usa.com for the latest news and product information rcf the sound behind the experience for the most comfortable headphones that you can wear all day check out the audix pro studio range starting at just 99 dollars. find out more at audixusa.com alan and heath has asked us to read this food for thought there is no egg and eggplant not ham and hamburger neither apple or pine and pineapple, English muffins weren't invented in England, or french fries in France. What a world we live in.
2: I wish I could break free, back to where I'm supposed to be. I wish I-
1: Welcome back to the Sickles and Noise podcast, or welcome for the first time, actually. We, we keep we keep uh, digressing on whether we should say back or two or whatever, but welcome to the Sickles and Noise podcast. Uh, I'm solo tonight. Uh, all of my compadres, Kyle, Michael, Sam, are all out doing gigs, and I'm stuck here, so y'all got to put up with me for the next 45 minutes to an hour just talking to myself, so we'll see if we can make this happen. Um no, not really. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. I probably could, but I'm I'm not going to try right now. Uh, so I don't have any housekeeping, so we're going to get right into our topic. A lot of you probably saw me post about it, ask some questions. Um, a few episodes ago, we had uh, Dr. Heather Malyuk on, and we started discussing the topic of hearing um, health and um, hearing profile and just... Um, recognizing that there is an there's audiologists out there who actually know and care about us and musicians more than just your hearing aids and whatnot and not dismissing people who only do that just that you know there are we, we have different needs or more thoughts and concerns. Um, And I think there's probably a lot of assumptions that our industry has put together around the idea of tests and hearing profiles and uh, things that we can do about safety. And there are stigmas of not wanting to get tested because of egos and things like that. And so we want to continue to break down those walls and educate. Um, And Heather helped start that. And she encouraged us to keep continuing the conversation with other people. Um, She unfortunately couldn't be here tonight, um, but we have a host of people. Uh, I'm going to do my best to introduce all of them. So first, uh, we have Dr. Laura Sinette. Um, and she is the owner of Sound Culture, a private practice focusing on hearing preservation for music industry professionals. Uh, she's an audiologist and audio engineer at Tuned. Uh, and I'd like to add that she also was an audio engineer for film. Uh, she worked with Sensophonics um, uh, and things like that. So that's this, the, you know, as we get into this, you, these people actually know our industry to a degree. So that's, that's helpful. Um, Dr. Frank um, Wordinger. Uh, founder of earmark hearing uh conservation um he has a mission of improving hearing healthy musicians in the greater philadelphia area which i happen to be at and i will hopefully go see him soon um and um dr juan vasquez of tuned uh so actually f- frank are you with tuned as well or are you are all of you yep. guys with tuned or also okay, tuned. Cool. awesome so we'll, we'll we'll get into that so um Welcome everybody. I appreciate you hanging out. Um I you know, the housekeeping that I'm gonna get out right up front um is you guys have probably seen me post about it. We've actually posted Michael's episode, but um Frank and Juan have a epi- um a podcast um that I think is phenomenal uh called oh, Talking thank Ears. You. <laughs> um and M- michael uh, did an episode on a talking more specifically about spl um and uh i've thir- i've listened to i think all but one at this point um i know you guys are oh. kind of just getting getting started and uh it's phenomenal and a lot of the things we're gonna get into tonight um you guys have either maybe already touched to a degree and and, and we'll jump around so please go check that out so all right enough mm-hmm. of me Welcome everybody. Well now
0: your listeners can <laughs> see me blushing, so thank you for that.
2: <laughs> Hear um, you blushing.
0: <laughs> so what does uh, a
2: blushing sound like? A blush, sorry. Ooh. Sorry. No,
0: no, no. Just a yeah. rush of blood uh, to the head.
2: <laughs> How would a sound designer design that? <sighs> Probably nothing crazy, just like a, a low frequency whoosh crescendo type of whoosh that that happens slowly, maybe over five second period. That's what I think I'd start out with. Yeah, that's what I would say. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, works <it's, laughs> <it's> all good. <laughs>
1: um, so I think to, to set the stage for a couple areas um, would be um, for one, uh, again, if you haven't listened to this, it's not a prerequisite to go back and listen to the, the conversation with um, um, Dr. Heather. Uh, but it, there's a lot of things we probably started um, that we don't need to recover on this one. Um, the short story I want to just nip in the bud is, well, when, when should I see a hearing specialist? And the answer is uh, as soon as possible at whatever stage, if you haven't ever, (laughs) Um, right. I mean, this is uh, just as much as you should be seeing, you know, annual uh, physicals for your doctors and dentists and all these other things. Like this is a part of your life um, that needs to be cared for. Right. So that's just, this is, you don't wait until there's damage or problems or scared, right. That's, it's just, it needs to be part of that. In fact, the, the one thing i wrote down frank uh from your episode with juan today um was the guitar analogy and i think was it was it santucci dr santucci who initially had maybe said this but um think of your ears as um as a kid you were given this guitar and you have this guitar for the rest of your life it's the only guitar you can ever have for the rest of your life how are you going to treat it that's your ears mm-hmm. right so uh, yeah if that doesn't like smack you in the face uh that's um um and then the other thing would be um to help break the stigma again of look we as audio engineers have um uh, egos about not wanting to get tested for fear of finding out or most often i would say people have two things they have a fear of finding out what might actually be wrong um or we just don't Want other people to know that there may be something mm-hmm. wrong because people think that hey, if mm-hmm. you have hearing damage, that maybe you're not as good of a mix engineer, which is false or or a musician. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a lot of things we're going to talk about is more about mix engineer. Um, so, can Frank, can you tell the story about you had a drummer who came to you um, and that experience and his eye opening of of um, of why he should get tested as opposed to me retelling a
0: story? Yeah. Yeah, I think the one that we told on that episode, and boy, we recorded that a couple months ago, but it just happened to me a couple days ago with, with another, actually an engineer, uh, a friend of house and, and mix engineer said that he didn't want to do the test because he was similar situation. He we said, well, what if I find out that I have a problem? And I said, well, is that going to stop you from going on this next tour that you're prepping for? And he goes, uh, no, I'll just, you know, be a little bit more careful. I'm like, so if you don't find out that you have a problem like don't you think that's a little bit of a bigger issue and then he obviously wanted to have a hearing test because <laughs> knowledge allows you to make smart choices versus you know maintaining ignorance on purpose is is unfortunate that's kind mm-hmm. of where i land on it
1: Yeah, so, yeah. So i mean like yeah so what's the harm in knowing if you're if you um um know any results so yeah so that, that's cool so let's you know and part of this started with me asking heather you know heather had made this post but she's really great about educating and a lot of what heather does is she's trying to educate the audiology community because as as we've talked about there are there are, it's a very small amount of people in the audiology community that actually has a um special attention or knowledge mm-hmm. towards musicians, um, and audio engineers. Um, and so I know you as a, as, uh, as a community want to help bring that awareness up within your own community and then vice versa. I'm trying to help be a cat, or we're trying to help be a catalyst to within our industry right, as well. So, um, and she had posted, you know, you know, a picture, um, of, of, of an audiogram and, um, and and everybody has opinions who never went to school like you guys did uh, of how that should look and what does it actually say? What does that mean? So can can one of you guys or multiple kind of just talk about the audiogram process? What and I know we're, we, this is an audio podcast you can't quite see it, but can kind of describe what people are looking at because unfortunately, as audio engineers, we know, know too much about our we know too much for our own good when it comes to audio, and we think we know what we're looking at but I don't think we actually know what we're looking at.
2: (laughs) It's such a great question. I think that uh, the the hesitancy to seeing an audiologist and having your hearing tested, absolutely, Chris, it is fear. For my capstone, when I was a doctorate student, I tried to collect data on audio post-production engineers. There's very little research, little to no research that's been done on hearing and audio engineers, but there was virtually zero research done specifically on audio post-production engineers, which isn't quite your audience, but again, we're similar enough that you can probably relate. And at this time, all of my friends and colleagues were film sound engineers, either production sound or post. And it was like pulling teeth. Maybe we need to come up with a new analogy. That's like (laughs) the ear pulling hair cells in the ear um, to get my friends even to participate. And it was essentially a free hearing test, which uh, that's a different conversation. I'm not into the free (laughs) hearing test thing, but it was pulling teeth and everybody just so quickly said, I'm scared. I don't Mm. want to know. It was, I don't want to know. So I totally agree with Frank. Um, But I think the reason why people are scared is they're not quite exactly informed about what the hearing, what information or data they're going to get. Sure. Sure. Um, And then the bigger picture of why people are scared is because all of society doesn't really understand what's involved with getting your hearing tested and why you should. So it's a societal I guess problem you could say that people like you and like us were trying to um, raise awareness about how not scary it is uh, right. to get your hearing tested. So I always feel like, as the audiologist, having I have to you know you have to balance that fear that is very real with figuring out how to make someone comfortable and and convince them so frank you did a great job with that i guess drummer everyone is different and something is going to work differently depending on the individual when i worked with dr michael santucci the legendary audiologist music audiologist I mean, he is a presence, um, grew up in the south side of Chicago, and he would just instill, he's like, I instill the fear of God, and then they get their <laughs> hearing tested. I'm like, that works for him, but I find that it doesn't work for me to do that. So I have, to, sure. you know, I have to find my own way. But I digress. The most common part of the hearing evaluation is the audiogram. It's a threshold of hearing test. We are just simply looking to see what the softest, pure tones, you, your auditory system, you can detect um, at some octaves and interoctaves. It's a threshold test. And some time ago, there were people who decided what was considered normal, what was considered outside of normal. But I think the biggest thing to maybe calm people's fears is a, usually your threshold results are better than you think, usually. And I have tested thousands of musicians and engineers. Um, and, and it's also every, it's a sense. It's per, like we're, we're, we're trying to measure perception, right? Um, so even if you have some threshold loss, that doesn't tell us how that's affecting supra threshold hearing, which is sounds that are not just the tiniest, the softest sound you can hear um, because we have just, we have dynamic range. And if we have a little bit of threshold loss at one frequency, yes, we know our dynamic range will be a little compromised, but it still doesn't tell us, oh, now n- the way that you perceive 4,000 hertz at 80 dB SPL, you're not going to hear that as well as someone else. Mm. So it's a it is a threshold of hearing test And it tells us if if there has been some injury in the ear, it helps us to understand and diagnose where the hearing loss, and that's what hearing loss is, it's loss of the ability to detect soft sounds. It can help us to diagnose what might have caused that, what part of the auditory system that injury might be. So it is not the end all be all. You can actually um, measure thresholds on animals, it doesn't say anything about your if you have golden ears still. And one example I like to tell people is a good friend of mine named Richard Einhorn. He is a Grammy nominated or award winning I don't remember uh, mastering uh, mastering engineer. He also is a composer. He's composed operas that have been performed at, at the at Lincoln Center in New York City, and he talks very openly about his incredibly crazy hearing loss, asymmetrical, conductive, and sensory neural, And he's still, I am shocked. We bounce things off each other all the time. You look at his audiogram and you would think this man should not be, you might think, oh, how can he be engineer? How can he be mastering? And he is phenomenal still at what he mm. does. And so that's just my first um, thing I'd like to tell people. It's a threshold of hearing test. It doesn't necessarily tell us if you're going to be hearing poorly, even if you don't get normal results. Sure.
1: So uh, being a threshold, but that's still, doesn't, it requires, let's go, go into the perception thing. It requires the, is, is the test dependent upon perception lining up with what the eardrum and everything else is actually doing? In other words, if someone's perception is off, does, can the results be off of what the mechanical bits of your ear drummer thing are actually capable of doing? Does that make sense?
2: And So you're, it sounds like you're asking uh, how much of it is peripheral, which is um, the mechanical parts, like the, the ear, the, the middle ear, the inner ear, how much of it is maybe brain? Right. Um, I, I would say, that's a great question. This is already fun because patients, <laughs> yeah. like non-music, even musicians don't ask questions like this, but audio engineers will. Um, I would say, and then I'd love to hear what Juan and Frank think um this the threshold detection is so basic again animals can detect thresholds um that it, it, i would say we're looking at the whole system it's definitely the mechanical parts as well as perception but but it is more i would say neurophysiological so the brain when a neuron's firing right. we're, we're talking about neurons I would consider when we're doing a threshold detection test, the neuron to be part of the the like mechanical, the neurophysiological sure. and chemical process that all happens, all the transduction that happens from the vibrating air molecule up to the firing in the brain. That's my best way of answering that.
0: Yeah. I was going to say that it's kind of like uh it's like the signal light on your board or on a channel. Like once you see signal coming through the system, that means that all of your parts are connected. It doesn't Mm -hmm. say the quality of the signal. It just says that you're receiving signal. So by doing a threshold search, what we're really doing is we're finding we're We're asking the brain to react, but for the brain to react, all the parts in front of it have to be working the eardrum, the, uh, the ossicles, the inner ear, the nerve, all of it has to be, Doing its job for us to get that response that is your threshold. And then in doing so, the threshold then tells us if anything's happening upstream of the brain in any of those parts. And we can kind of identify where it is based on what the problem is with the thresholds.
1: Makes sense.
3: And it may not be the part of the ear that is responsible for our sense of hearing. Uh, What I like to say to some folks is you know, if you're not able to hear very well it may not be necessarily because of an injury but say for example if there's too much wax in the ear or something like that mm. i like to say if there's too much in front of your eyes it's harder to see but if there's too much obstructing the pathway of sound going to your auditory system it's going to affect how well you're going to hear that threshold so sure how that I guess cuz works yeah
1: yeah yeah, I, like, because wh- where my head goes is like, you know, like, and, um, like, there's ways of that now, these doctors, like, they can, uh, I don't see my, my kids go to the doctors now, and they just, they scan your eyes, and they're able to just, like, do these things and, like, read things off your eyes without actually having any call or response, right? Like, is there a way to actually measure the eardrum and things like that to know that the, it's working versus separating from, again, that, that perception side of things? And, is that only really needed in like much further diagnosis? Does that make sense? Oh, I see
0: your question. Yeah, so there are these objective tests um, of the eardrum function, of the inner ears function. We do these tests, which I think you guys mentioned when when Heather was on, of autoacoustic emissions, where we test the outer hair cells function inside the cochlea. We can do nerve signal tests called auditory brainstem response tests. We can even do brainstem and cortical response testing kind of as we get higher up in some of these, uh, some of these neurophysiological tests that we're able to do of hearing the gold standard though, cause none of those are testing the whole system. The gold standard right. is always going to be this hearing test. Cause it's actually the one test that we have as basic as it is. It's the one test that we have that measures the whole thing that looks at the whole thing. No, um,
1: it, so it makes sense. We use I'm, these I'm kind of
0: inner. Yeah.
1: Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, Yeah. I was, I'm trying to break it down too much. Right. My, my, my audio brain goes, Oh, well I can take a transfer function of a, a, yep. a d- speaker driver that's going right. And I, and I can tell what that driver is doing. But then, like you said, once you put it together with the box and with the DSP and in the room, right. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just the analogy here. I think I can make for our audio humans is that again, yep. we're not, you're, 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 you're your audiogram is more of, it's the room, it's the console, it's everything. It's everything. That point As opposed to the driver or yeah. the DSP or, yeah, okay, yeah.
0: And then we call each of those tests the site of lesion testing, which is the same as what we do in audio engineering. As you go, hey, why am I not getting signal on channel three? Let's go find out. Is it the microphone? Is it the cable? Is it the patch bay? Is it the snake? Where is the problem? And you can figure out the problem kind of by diagnosing each item. That's what we're doing with those objective tests. And then I think what's interesting is when we go out and work with musicians, I'm not sure if this is what, um, uh, Juan and Laura, uh, what you guys do, but very often, um, we're doing a much more simplified version of just the threshold testing for musicians in order to start the conversation in order to start Mm. the, uh, the view of this person's, um, auditory system and auditory, uh, what was the phrase that we were using before? Your hearing profile. And then yeah. from there, if there is a diagnostic medical reason, we'll go forward with the full diagnostic sure. medical test.
1: And then can you guys briefly describe, there are two different types of tests, right? I mean, there's your standard that don't doesn't go above what, 8K or 4K? Um, um, and yet there's extended high frequency and us as audio engineers, obviously almost always want to go above, right? Can you guys explain what that is? Go ahead, Juan. Sure. Our, <laughs> <Yeah. our>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: so the standard audiological evaluation does go only up to eight thousand hertz. Extended high frequencies are very nice for musicians and sound engineers because that's another part of the ear. Well, that's part of the ear that you know we generally tend to use. Really, right. um, why it's so limited is because of uh, speech perception and communication. And that's why. So that's one limitation. Another could be because clinical uh, equipment, time with the patient, things like that. But it's also very useful information uh, to provide counseling, education to the musician or sound engineer because that's you know a part of the ear that they generally tend to use. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, most of the time, if you Go to uh, the neighborhood audi- audiologist. They will likely only test up to eight thousand hertz. But seeing a musician a specialist, we'd like to expand the range a little bit more. Get sure. a bigger picture. I like the way that Laura put uh, put it when I was a student of hers. We tend to get a picture of the auditory system, mm. and that's just one part of it. Threshold test being that, you know, looking from 250 to, at the clinic, what was it, 18,000 hertz, where we have that audiometric equipment and that capability to test out that far. There are, of course, other tools, but that's one way that we can really get a good glimpse, a good picture of a person's hearing. Sure. Yeah.
2: A lot of audiologists will say, oh, well, one reason that we don't want to spend the time, and sometimes audiologists get 10 minutes with a patient in certain Mm. clinics. So this is understandable where they're having to budget every 30-second interval that they use. But one is that they'll say there are no norms. So you're going to hear a lot when you start um, getting your hearing evaluated, this is the normal range. Um, these are the norms that we use, the criteria we use to diagnose what's normal or abnormal. And this is for an audiogram, which is the threshold of a hearing test, or if you do the eardrum movement test or tympanometry, you know whatever test, they will all have norms. There are, and again, norms r- are created by researchers and you know, hearing science professionals and clinicians together. And it makes it easy for the clinician to interpret the results of a test. So with extended high frequencies, there aren't any official norms. But this is something where we actually try to educate other audiologists. There is still a lot of value in measuring extended high frequency thresholds. I think um, beyond even if it's a musician or a sound engineer. So we know that frequencies above 8000 hertz we will lose those as we age um frequencies around 8000 hertz or below i like to say age alone doesn't cause hearing loss Mm -hmm. there so there's this Hmm. myth that oh as i age i'm gonna have hearing loss the reason we know age alone isn't the factor is because um people who are 80 and 90 years old have had normal hearing thresholds and so i don't like it When people come to me and say like, oh, I've had my hearing tested and the ENT and the audiologist said, oh, I have, you know, my hearing for my age is good. There's normal hearing or there's, uh, you know, hearing that's outside the normal range. So, but with extended highs, we will lose those as we age. But the idea, from the little research that has been done, and a lot of that has been done with the data at Sensophonics, the musicians' clinic in Chicago, with Michael Santucci and, and lots of his, the people who run the clinic, and students at Rush University and Northwestern, um, th- it does. There is evidence to suggest we can lose those at a faster rate due to loud sound exposure and other factors as well. But that's what we we focus on um, analyzing when we're looking at all of the thousands of records he has of extended high-frequency hearing. So, um, and people in audiology tend to sort of not think that they're that important and actually we know they're important of course for audio engineers you know I have spent a lot of my career doing the not so glamorous dialogue editing for movies and huh. a lot of dialogue editing actually means um, cleaning up the audio and I started before IZotope, um <laughs> had come out with uh, all their brilliant software to do uh, you know this <laughs> noise cleanup for audio yeah. um, and So, yes, of course, we know that that part of the frequency range is important for us. But even for every every other person, those extended highs help us a lot with localization. It helps us to Mm. hear better when there's background noise. Um, And so it's just another kind of reason why we really want to protect our hearing and manage the loud sound around us. I just wrote a blog post, an internal blog post for Tuned that only the tuned audiologists see. And it's called... Um, why don't they care about us advocating for extended high frequencies? <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, I am really inspired by um, Michael Lawrence because he has these brilliant titles for his blog posts. <laughs> When he nice. you know, writes yes. for you guys. Well, look,
1: I'm like, e- look, everything about Michael is brilliant. <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> yes,
2: yes. Well, I just love it. He's got these great titles. I'm like, mm, I'm inspired. I need to start doing that too. So, Michael, that's all you.
1: He's, he's super witty. Um, all right, let's do this. So, uh, we could obviously do a whole episode on tinnitus. Um, which, for the record, um, it wasn't until uh, um, Heather's episode that I heard it called that way, and I always heard it called tinnitus. And it is so hard to change my language to tinnitus. And anyway, I'm trying.
0: <laughs> May I suggest um, you don't have to change? It's potatoes, potatoes. Okay, I tomatoes, disagree, tomatoes. Frank. Oh, oh, oh! <laughs> yeah, oh, I love this. So I, I also say tinnitus, but I'd love to hear an argument for well, a I, strict I, line. Yeah.
2: i i I listened to the podcast but i don't remember if heather explained why no i I, I wanted to
1: ask but i felt like the the dumb guy who like who didn't know that it was tinnitus versus tinnitus or i don't anyway
2: sure no ever i mean and and this is all michael santucci this is all his influence and juan i don't know if you got this as well but when we say tinnitus it's Suggest that it's itis. The suffix is itis, but it's itus. So if we say itis, uh. we're almost conveying the idea that it's some kind of inflammatory. It's an, an ick. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah,
1: it's an itis. It's an yep. itis, I, and like meningitis. Makes, and, and you know what? <laughs> that makes sense.
2: It's, but I, wait, that's all props wait. to Michael. Yep. He yeah. says that, and I and I kind of thought, yeah, I think we should start. Telling people it's tinnitus. Yeah,
0: that is the correct. It's it's funny because it's like the correct way, but it's also kind of like a, it's like a dialect thing. Sure. And it's okay that people call it what they want to call it. I, I prefer tinnitus also, but I think we're biased because of also when we, when you go through audiology school, everybody calls it tinnitus because that's the dialect that we're seeping in. You know, and then we come out of that, and we we go, oh, other people say tinnitus. That's weird. Okay, well, whatever. Right. But it's it's I don't know. Uh, to me, it's tomatoes to, pot- to potatoes. But I will have that that fun conversation about the itis sometimes when. <laughs> when you want if to someone about asks it.
2: right if no yeah. if they don't if no sure. people sure. don't ask yeah. me i don't say anything
0: sure my favorite um, chris is when you ahead. start to have the conversation with somebody and they say well i'm here because my tinnitus and i say cool so when did you first start getting tinnitus and instantly for the rest of the appointment they say tinnitus and i'm like oh <laughs> yeah. you're wow you're a chameleon aren't you <laughs>
1: <laughs> you just jump right would, into that i, I would my first husband uh you mean tinnitus <laughs> But anyway, um, all right. So we could obviously spend a whole episode on tinnitus and we don't. But uh, what I would encourage is, quite frankly, is go listen to Frank's podcast because every other episode talks about it, if not almost all of them, right? Um, but that's because it's it's such a common thing, and 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 part of what we're trying to do is educate on um, how common it is, and so. But let's let's scratch the surface on the common questions of is there a cure what is habi- uh, is it habituation habit ha- what was the, what
0: was the uh <laughs> what was frank what was Hibit- the word habituation habituation
1: yeah. um just still don't know fully what that means um and um uh what what does it look like to live with it um and to work with it uh and as condensed as we can without <laughs> spending a whole episode on it and yeah
0: sure The nutshell answer to all of that is number one, there's no cure uh, to tinnitus. There's no pill you can take, no treatment that's going to get rid of it. For some people, it does certainly go away. That is kind of a fluke more than it is the standard. So you don't expect that. For most people though, we can reach a point of habituation, which in a nutshell just means getting to a point where it no longer means much in your life. Mm. And I can explain my, my personal example with this, which kind of, Correlates with a lot of our patients as well. Um, you get tinnitus when you're a teenager. It's a big problem. You consider it the biggest, most important part of your life. I'm talking about myself in the third person now. Um, you uh write on your health history forms when people say like what other health conditions do you have, you're like tinnitus in all bold letters because it's important <laughs> to me. And then uh at a certain point, it no longer is an important part of your life. You don't make a lot of choices and judgments and uh corrections and it isn't a thing that kind of constantly bothers you is it a thing you constantly hear again still i'm in the third person yes <laughs> just constantly but does it bother me not anymore right it doesn't it's not a important part of my life except for the fact that it gave me a wonderful career and i'm very thankful for that sure <laughs> but um we talk to our patients about this about how the goal isn't to get rid of it the goal is to get to a point where it isn't the thing that's driving you, um, driving to you to make
3: life choices anymore.
1: Yeah. Juan, do you want to, you want to speak into that?
3: Yeah. Going back to what Frank was saying at first, you know, when I talked to musicians and sound engineers about this, I'd like to start off with, you know, I really don't like when other providers or other doctors say, Oh, well you got to learn to live with it. Cause there's no cure. Well, we can't really say that because it's not a disease. It's a symptom. Most of the time it's a symptom. And this is something that I learned from Dr. Michael Santucci. It's not something that, you know, that there's a pill for. There's a one-size-fits-all thing because it could come from so many different things. For musicians and sound engineers, of course, it is likely from way too much loud sound exposure, way too much loudness over time. Right, but it could also come from so many various different things—too um, much stress or anxiety, uh, impacted wax, you know, too much tension in the jaw or the neck, you know, cardiovascular issues. So many different things. So if we pinpoint where we uh, think it comes from, we there's a better way to manage it. But for us hmm. to say, oh well, there's not one pill for it. Well, because it comes, it could come from so many different things or things that are multifactorial. That makes it a little bit more complex. Again, for most musicians and sound engineers, it could likely be from way too much loudness. But yeah, that's one thing that I uh, like to emphasize. What, is that what
1: other cause would there be outside outside of sound exposure? What other causes would be there for tinnitus?
3: Perforation of the eardrum. Let's say, for example, if someone uses Mm. some sort of a cotton swab or something like that, or they think that they're cleaning the ears, but they go too far, puncture their eardrum, and now they have an actual physical injury. They're bleeding out of their ear. You know, that's something that could cause that. Some sort of a viral infection. Way too much wax in the ears. That's something that's ear related. Um, Stress or anxiety. You know, that could, for me, that's actually um, one of the Flare ups that I have with my tinnitus if
1: I'm feeling too
3: stressed or or anxious or something like that. That is actually something that could um, provoke a spike. Um, Cardiovascular issues, Mm. you know, diabetes, high blood pressure, maybe some tobacco use, um, way too much uh, quinine, too many gin and tonics, maybe, you know. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> what else is there, <laughs> you know, actual trauma, you know, traumatic brain injury, car accident, is the you know, so you said,
1: yeah, uh, you said there's a lot of, um, you said cardiovascular blood when you're, when you have stress, is there, is that a, is that a blood flow thing that is, is it, is it still, so is it blood related in that or not at all? Is that not the same thing? I don't.
2: That's a good question. And I think that uh, um, cardiovascular is a huge factor when it comes to hearing problems and certainly tinnitus. And um, I think that when we have stress and anxiety, um, I'm not going to be able to describe this as well as I should, or as well as maybe a a neuroscientist would be able to, but for sure it is affecting our blood flow. It's affecting Mm -hmm. all of the hormonal releases that are cortisol and um, adrenaline that cause our body and our central nervous system, our brain, to think that there's a threat. So one of the physiological responses when those hormones are released is an increase in your heart rate and an increase in blood pressure. So I, I would, I'm just kind of talking it out loud, but yeah, I would think that stress and anxiety probably is related to blood pressure and amongst many other things. But yeah, one, I think that's great. You're, you know, when you're mentioning also jaw issues, I think musicians tend to have a lot of tension in their jaw, vocalists especially, or anyone yeah. using their face to make the sound. But cardiovascular, I've been researching even more lately about diabetes, and there's actually research mm-hmm. to suggest, or, or to it tells us that your risk for tinnitus absolutely increases. We, we kind of know that hearing loss is correlated, uh, people who have diabetes, hearing loss has a positive correlation. But I actually didn't know there's the same with tinnitus, and mm. it would be... Um, you know, uh, things like the way that the blood is carried up into the tiny little delicate inner ear.
0: One other one that I think is worth mentioning is a lot of medications. In fact, if you look at the side, uh, side effect list of almost every medication, mm. tinnitus is listed. Oh, wow. Um, uh, the most common one that people take every single day is aspirin. Aspirin in high enough doses gives tinnitus to people who've never experienced tinnitus before. Um, mm. And it used to be the way that you would dose aspirin is you take it until your ears are ringing and then you back off a couple. Oh, um, wow. So tinnitus comes along with so many medications. So when people all of a sudden have a change in their tinnitus experience, we usually go through kind of a medical and a a life stress kind of rundown, what's new in your life. And then one more layer to this that I wanted to add is that a lot of people experience tinnitus and it's in the background, in the peripheries. They do not notice it or care about it Mm -hmm. or think about it one bit until they have some life trigger that it's then tied to. And as a musician, coming off the road, ending a big tour, releasing a big album, having an album flop, having bad things happen, having good events happen, all of those can be trigger events that then your brain links that tinnitus to emotionally, and then you're stuck with this this uh, tie-in where all of a sudden it becomes important in your life when before it was just yeah. background, background information.
1: That plays so much into the perception side of things, right? The mental side of- It's 100% of, perception,
0: like... yep. Having tinnitus is like having a left foot a lot of people have them some people are bothered by their left feet once you're bothered by your left foot it's hard to ignore <laughs> the fact that you have a left foot and guess what medical science has proven that there's still no cure for having a left foot <laughs> so we just we're stuck with it
1: oh man um man that's interesting um and they, i it, i think that just i mean i think all of that proves to um, again, if, if it's a perception thing, not, oh, and I guess you have to be, we have to be careful to, um, make sure people don't think, or we're not telling people, Hey, you're just thinking this, right. It, like, it, 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 you're not, not unvalidating what they're experiencing. Right. Um, but, um, that there is ways to mentally cope or manage the experience, uh, and work lead into that. So, yeah, completely.
0: I, I, I do I do feel like a lot of people are told it's all in your head or that it's not uh, a real thing. And then I was reminded recently um, by a dentist who said, uh, all your dental problems are also all in your head. <laughs> Just because it's in your head doesn't mean it can't have a physiological basis or can't have a medical cause. Everything is in your head that's important.
2: <laughs> I like that dentist. I need yeah. to start seeing that dentist. She's very smart. <laughs> Well, and, and I like to tell people that that we think we're pretty sure um, it, it's there are neurons firing somewhere when you're perceiving ringing or chirping or buzzing or hissing. It's highly likely that there are neurons somewhere in the brain that are fire, or in the the auditory system or brain that are firing. Or you know, neurons. When a neuron is at rest, it's firing. And there are some neurons that fire, you know, X number of times per second, others more than that. And then when, um, like, let's talk about the threshold, when you're detecting a threshold, the neuron that normally fires kind of spontaneously, it will now fire in a pattern way. And for low frequencies, it correlates with the frequency, like there are all all this crazy stuff. So fascinating. Um, But One of the theories of tinnitus, especially if it's due to loud sound exposure, is a neuron is used to receiving a signal from either a neuron before it or the neurons that are connected to the hearing cells, to that hearing cell. If that hearing cell has died, now it's not able to send any kind of information to that neuron. And one of the theories, again, theory, is that the neuron now doesn't know what to do, so it just starts firing like an extra amount. Because it's confused. So again, I, I when people think, "Oh my God, is it that question?" Oh, is it only in my head? Well, like Frank said, I love it. <laughs> yeah, so it's in your head, but there probably is a neurophysiological basis for why you're hearing that sound.
1: Sure. Well, and and I so the, the not trying to cross the lines here, but like uh, you know, in in destigmatizing mental health, right? Um, you know. People often dismiss things of, you know, um, you know, when someone breaks an arm, you know, it's a visible, physical thing, a tangible thing that people can talk about or whatever. Um, And when something is not working neurologically in your head, that's no different than this break, cut, whatever. uh, And you can't dismiss it just because you can't tangibly touch, feel or see it.
0: Same thing. Same thing. We got to start treating the the brain like an organ, which it is, right? Yeah, for sure.
1: All right. So um, Heather actually asked this question. I I, I posted the questions uh, in our Facebook and Discord or whatever, and she she was the first one to answer, which was great. Um, <laughs> uh, um so uh, she said, when it comes to earplugs, how much does frequency response really matter? Um, and then what affects the frequency response of an earplug? I'm, I'm laughing. She, is, she, is, she, is she trying to put you all the, on the spot? Is that what this is? Wh- is
0: <laughs> no, I'm laughing because we should go. Well, uh, according to Heather Maliak, um, <laughs> 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 recently published, uh, paper. No, um, <laughs> I'm just making jokes. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> I think we're all just being really polite and we don't want to, um, we don't want to speak on each other's toes walk on each other's toes i don't know juan you want to answer this one
1: uh, hold up on. for the record i like how the deflection is always to juan just saying i'm i'm helping out here Juan. and that <laughs> i think frank and laura i constantly are just punting to you so <laughs> i think
3: it's you know, i also want to, to just mention
2: i love your t-shirt one
3: no right
2: it says yeah
3: oh, respect your ears respect your ears nice. yeah Going back to that, though, you know, it's like, yeah. And Michael's
0: well. getting a lot of uh, free publicity
3: from this episode. Yeah, he totally is. But I don't know. I think they like to test me. It's like musicians coming in to the clinic. It's like, I didn't come here to be quizzed. You know, I don't want to take a hearing <laughs> test. <laughs> um, the question. Do
1: you mean to repeat and
3: it? What is, yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs>
1: Um, when it comes to earplugs how much does frequency response really matter and then what affects the frequency response of earplugs
3: yeah so how much does a frequency response actually matter I think it depends on who's using it Um, the the way that I understand that question you know if someone's working in construction it's like yeah you don't want to hear the the jackhammer you know constantly for hours on end you know because that's going to hurt your ears right but you know Musicians and sound engineers. Why is good fidelity important? Because you don't want to affect your performance. You don't want anything to affect negatively your experience um, being in Mm -hmm. that environment. You know the, the the concert or mixing or whatever creating the music. You know and so generally, you know someone using earplugs in a creative or artistic way, musical way, if it's going to impact how they are doing what they are doing, they're not going to accept it. And so why Mm -hmm. does frequency response matter? Because they're not going to want to use them and, you know, they could potentially injure themselves from way too much loud sound exposure. So why does frequency response matter? Because it's not going to affect the, uh, way that they hear it other than how much volume that they're getting into their ears right you're just limiting the intensity sure rather than affecting how well you can hear the vocalist or the guitar solo or the cymbals or whatever you know you're not hearing too much bass or yeah. not hearing enough of the highs so yeah that's how i understand the question
1: and and to and not what, to, to not leave anyone behind, and Frank, you can probably speak into this, but just so I mean, since I don't know who's actually going to listen to this, I and, and I don't want to take for granted that while a lot of audio engineers know that there are filtered earplugs, yeah. can you maybe speak into that we're not just talking about the orange foamies that you're just shoving in there, right? We well, there's <laughs> there's a wealth of um, places that have filtered earplugs and that probably plays yeah. into this mostly.
0: Yeah. And I think the way I liked kind of Juan's answer there though, because the way that I usually talk about this is like frequency response is the goal of trying to get as flat a response as possible. And so when you look at an EQ curve, I want a flat line. I don't want distortions. <clears throat> I don't want curves. I don't want filters that are going to mess with. Filters, coloration. Right. Coloration. Thank you. Um, so to do that, um, it was developed many, many years ago these, uh, basically micro mesh filters that, uh, arrest or break the sound a little bit on the way into the ear canal, but the way that the ear, uh, the filtered earplugs are made, they have a resonance chamber that mimics the shape and resonance of your ear canal or the volume, really the, the space, the physical space, and thus keep that resonance of your ear canal. And so what you end up with are kind of two categories of earplugs ones that are relatively flat or high fidelity or uh, uniform attenuation in our audiologic terms and then ones that do attenuate more in the higher frequencies. So when you talk about foam ear plugs, you're talking about a huge differential between the low frequency attenuation and the highs, which for a concert goer, maybe actually not that bad. Of This is why I like Juan's answer. It depends on kind of what you're going to use it mm. for. For a concert goer, hearing the bass more goes back to everything that you guys talk about with a versus C balancing mm-hmm. and increasing the, uh, perceptual loudness while decreasing the, uh, you know, the a weighted SPL, all of that kind of plays into wearing a foam earplug. You, you are pushing things up on the equal co- loudness contours by wearing an earplug that does not flatly attenuate, but for a musician, or an engineer, or somebody who wants their, their, you know, Stratocaster to sound like a Stratocaster and not a telly because they didn't wear the right earplugs, you want your instrument to sound like your instrument, you want your mix mm-hmm. to sound like your mix, then you're going to want flat attenuation or uh, equal uniform attenuation earplugs.
2: And may I add that something that I find interesting is, um, you know, for anybody in any profession is you may have certain beliefs at some point in your career and then they change or they evolve over time and um i think i used to be in the mindset of oh my gosh a musician and especially a sound engineer must only have like the flattest most perfect earplug but then what you start learning is even the best uh, earplug filters out there that frank was talking about made by etymotic and the best earplug manufacturer because um the maintaining that natural resonance of the ear canal is really important and that also depends on who's manufacturing the silicone or vinyl part of the earplug all of those things matter um but in real life even the most perfect custom fit earplug when it is in an ear those engineering feats are based off of an average ear canal and the average shape size volume of an ear, average ear canal. So we know there's individual uh, variability. There's a study that came out. You're, you're saying, hold
1: on th- real quick, th- th- just to pause. You're saying only if it's not a custom fitted one, yeah? Right. No, even oh, custom. customs. Yep. Even oh, okay. custom.
2: Even the most perfectly crafted two spec custom earplug made by the best, because lots of people manufacture a custom earplugs. Lots sure. of companies manufacture custom earplugs, but there are some who have um, better, better manufacturing processes. Sure. They have tools to actually measure some of these uh, to make sure the resonances are, are there and others who don't even know that, that those things even exist. So the most perfect custom um, earplug Still, you're going to have a lot of variability mm. in, a, in an ear canal because, again, all of those things are based off of an average ear canal resonance. And then they're also probably based upon one single jaw position. And a lot of times people are moving their jaw. So what, I've, what I think now um, is, and Heather and I have talked about this a lot, in theory, anybody can ear train to any earplug. So especially somebody who is um, a musician or sound engineer, you have the potential to be able to ear train to any earplug. But the analogy might be, You have an sm 5057 and you have a Neumann U87, and you're trying to record clean vocals. Obviously, you want to go with the U87.
0: Oh, sorry, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it depends on what setting you're trying to get clean in, right?
2: You're right. You're right. You're right. Or How many times you're going to drop your microphone? um, Because the SM57s could be that's a a brick wall, and they survive. It's such a
0: good point, though, Laura, because it's kind of also. I mean, going back to like an instrument. It's like you pick up a, uh, entry level guitar off the shelf of your local music store, try to learn guitar versus hand that person a crafts, you know, masterwork guitar. It's going to be easier to learn on it because it plays easier. So Mm -hmm. it's easier to ear train to an earplug that is flatter, but everybody's is different. And so we can measure that. We can actually measure people's, um, flatness or attenuation or, or protection And, you know, there's lots of times where we audiologists will recommend a not flat earplug because it offers more audibility for somebody's needs on stage or during rehearsals. Mm. You know, we will intentionally go down to a lower uh, decibel filter because, yeah, you don't need flat in this setting. You need to hear more. You need some protection, but the flattest 15 decibel earplug is maybe not what you need in this particular setting when you're playing Mm. acoustic guitar in a folk you know, environment, or whatever. Sure. Yeah.
1: All right. So I'm going to on the topic just because we have so many questions that I would like to try to get to. This one this kind of goes back to the audiogram. So um, and I'm just kind of reading this uh, question verbatim. Um, I had a musician provide me with an audiogram mapping of his hearing loss with frequency and decibel values per side, right? So this is just, I, guess, I assume, you know, he got the audiogram that was presented to him at his at – his or her visit, or um, on the recommendation of another engineer that I worked with before him, I ran his aux or his monitor sent through Matrixes and inserted EQs and 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 tried to accommodate that curve. Um, I'm also actually I said verbatim. I'm, pra- I'm paraphrasing. Um, <laughs> the the response was he loved it. Uh, um, interesting. So it says I feel uh, as we should all have audiograph done and see exactly where we stand. It's like smarting your ears. Now, my initial reaction to that is, and no offense to who asked this question or whether that, that, that's probably not good. Uh, but uh, I have thoughts on that, but I'm very curious to see what you guys think. Um, should we as audio engineers be looking at these audiograms and making corrections based off of that?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really tough one. It's such I a think tough there's a, one. There's
2: not, a, there's not an easy answer to that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: A very multifaceted answer. Sure. I'm I sure, love I'm sure the it question. Is. Let's get into it, guys. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, my short and, and, answer, and, and, I'll, I'll, and then I'll end
1: I'm also going to go with the even shorter answer of on almost every question around audiology that I see either on Discord or Facebook is um, let's talk about this specifically individually to you with Correct. your audiologist, right? Yep. So, like, we'll, we'll get that out of the way, right? Let's just say, you know, there's almost always going to be a degree of. Hey, almost everything's gonna be unique to a person. You should probably talk to your audiologist or uh, audiologist specifically, yeah. but let's 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 broad stroke it a little bit.
0: <laughs> yeah, I could give a short answer and then punt it, which would which would be that there is really it can't be a one-to-one. You know, if you see a 20 decibel notch at 4K for an individual, that doesn't mean apply twenty decibels of gain at four K. Mm. You're gonna have a terrible situation as an output. <laughs> um, and again Back to what Laura and Juan were saying, the audiogram is your threshold. But if you're listening at 90 or 100 decibels through your in ears or through your stage monitors, the audiogram doesn't say anything about what's happening up there. So, using that, you can use the audiogram to inform, but not prescribe what you're going to do.
1: Right there. That's there.
0: I'm going to. That sentence right off. there.
1: That's that's, that's <laughs> the sentence. Say, say that one more time.
0: <laughs> inform. Nah, I'm to myself. Yeah. <laughs> and form Inform, not, not prescribe what you Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're going to end up in, in, in a muddy, bad world pretty quick. Cool.
2: And maybe giving somebody more hearing loss.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. Which, because let's go back to the perception conversation. Right. I mean, and this is where maybe I'm still getting tripped up on. Like if it graphs that way, it graphs that way. However, does that, mm. Does that mean that uh, does that graph always line up with how you perceive it or that's just how you're tra- uh, am I tripping myself up here right? like in other words, we we as humans are able to overcome loss and you might actually uh even though your threshold might be down, you might be able to hear things perceivably flat, but it's not. does that does that make sense? I'm, yes. I'm,
2: I would take it back to my my example of Richard Einhorn. He again has a crazy. Hearing loss, and that might make more. That might be more meaningful to audiologists. We're used to looking at an audiogram, saying, "Oh my God, look! It's totally not a typical pattern that we see. It's mixed in one ear. It's only sensory in the other." Um, but again, it's ear training or brain training. Mm. I think musicians and sound engineers have an extra super ha- superhero um, ability to do that. Um, but I think to sound like a broken record, um, it is a threshold. The audiogram is a threshold of hearing mm. tests. And I might ask people listening, Google loudness, um, loudness growth, loudness growth, and look at images and you're gonna see some graphs that show you what loudness growth, growth um, looks like for a normal hearing person. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of relatively a one-to-one ratio. You know, we can detect pianissimo and mezzo forte and forte you know our our, we all know most of us know our range of um, uh, our, our our ability to detect loudness is from zero to 100 db spl where zero is the threshold of hearing and then 120 is the threshold of pain but when you start losing your thresholds most of the time um, I mean, your your loudness growth will change. So it, it might be if it's a sensory neural hearing loss that you he- where you hear a very soft sound is where a normal hearing person might hear a medium level loudness, or, or might describe it as medium la- level loud- loudness. But then at some point, the person who has some sensory neural hearing loss, which is usually what. Hearing loss due to loud sound exposure is. It's it's has it's called sensory neural because um, it's the the sensory cells in the ear or the neurons that connect to it to make that a little simpler than it is. But um, but then at some point the rate of how they perceive loudness will be different than a normal hearing person. Um, and when we get to the louder part of the sound spectrum, or you know, the higher level s- sound pressure levels, a lot of people with Some hearing loss that's shown on the audiogram may perceive that loudness the same as a normal hearing person. So I think this is all just more support for what Frank said is use it to inform you, but not to prescribe. Mm.
0: And then one more layer to that. And sorry, Juan, I said I was going to pass, but one more layer would be for people who have damage to their outer hair cells, which often causes that threshold shift. Um, the outer hair cells, the part of your inner ear that actually handles and amplifies and causes your quiet threshold ability to hear is also the part of the ear that breaks and compresses and limits loud sounds in your inner ear. And thus we end up with this thing called recruitment and essentially not, not a clinical hyperacusis, but a an in, uh, inability to tolerate loud sounds at that same region or frequency range in the same ear. So a person with, uh, just to stick with a standard example of 4,000 hertz noise-induced hearing loss, so a hearing loss that's centered around 4,000 hertz, that person will also be extra sensitive to loud inputs at 4,000 hertz. Uh-huh. So this is why I get a little bit nervous when I hear a monitor <laughs> engineer saying, oh, I'm just going to yes. bump up what, what they're not hearing well, because then that cymbal crack and that snare drum and all the stuff that lives up there is going to be extra loud and sensitive to that person. And then back to Laura's point, possibly progress their hearing loss faster. I love a, how you
2: just explained that Frank. That's so elegantly put. And I even forgot about that, that the outer hair cells act like compressors. This is why we should all hang out more often. I know it's so true. And why we're doing here. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's like audio engineers should take a course about the neurophysiological, like the like that the inner ear and what's going on with the the neurons. Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating. Well, just paralleled a, and key. Yeah, go ahead. To go name
0: drop it. a different person other than Michael Santucci. Uh, <laughs> that's a lot of the conversation from Benj Cantor's Yes, from Ugh. from Northwestern. Who guys okay, should get Benj on. Wait, did I? He's from Northwestern. Uh, no, right? he's at Columbia, Columbia. College. Columbia, Columbia College. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Chicago. Other Chicago. Um, and he, uh, used to teach a audio for audiologists and an audiology for audi- audio, engineers, mm. course, cause he's an audio engineer who for some reason, all of a sudden became extremely knowledgeable o- about audiology stuff. Um, brilliant, brilliant man. man. Uh, he teaches <laughs> a course called, <laughs> yep, jinx. I'll buy you a Coke, but he teaches a course <laughs> called here tomorrow and it is worth looking into.
2: Benj teaches. Um, the auditory system like no one I've ever listened to. And I mean, I want to go back and take his entire class. I've sat in on a couple classes and so many of his students have come, um, graduated from that program and become amazing live sound and monitor engineers from Columbia College. And they tend to all understand hearing loss in the audiogram. So if it's almost like if, if the engineer looked at someone's audiogram and they they took Benji's course, I'd feel a little more comfortable that if they were- 100% programming or manipulating the sound they would do it safely
1: all right Juan frank took your thunder enough there did you have something to to throw in there
3: no i didn't have anything okay
1: that's okay well then um we'll maybe try to jump to another question real quick um again i said we weren't going to get to all these but we're trying to get to some so um i I like this one because this is I, i i think I would hope a lot of us are well aware uh, that we should have been using Q-tips in the way that most people use Q-tips and in and, and and packing earwax in. But this was this was a very good question. Doesn't shoving in ears in your ear all the time shove more wax further into your ears until they become more or completely impacted? This person apparently you know used them daily for custom dr- uh, for driving and had to bend them because of annual. Um, I- impacting, so I mean, as audio engineers who l- kind of live on IEMs and musicians, what do you have to say about you know the wax and what's what's best practice there on on how to handle all that? All right, Juan it's you for some, yeah.
3: I guess my you know being an audiologist, you know, and someone who cares about musicians <laughs> and sound engineers' ears, just come see one of us; <laughs> we'll handle it for you. Mm. You don't have anything to worry about. You know, you you shouldn't be, you know, other than your hearing protection or in-ears or, you know, headphones or something, you shouldn't be sticking anything else in your ears blindly, you know, because I love how Heather puts it, these are your money makers. And so if you're going to, you know, potentially hurt yourself by sticking something in that shouldn't be there, and the package even warns you to not do that, you know. Well Maybe but but, but, but IEMs,
1: but, I mean musicians yeah, and musicians and modern engineers sure. are having to wear those every day. So what's mm-hmm. what's the advice there for people who are months on tour and you're gonna have wax like you know, you're gonna have wax build up through that time.
3: Yeah. So if you can the, the,
2: yeah. the benefit yeah. oh sorry one, no
3: <laughs> if you can see what's we'll up. up. Yeah. And then we'll we'll take a look. If we need to clean the ears out, we will. At maximum maybe for an individual who maybe can't see an audiologist or see someone who can look in their ears and potentially clean them out if there's anything going on warm water when you shower just tilt your head and everything will be okay if it's painful stop of course you know but most of the time you know you don't want to be doing that if you have a perforation in your eardrum if you have an active ear infection or anything sure you don't think these you don't want things to get worse, but, you know, to do something safe at home where you don't have to worry too much. That's something that I would say, you know, you could potentially do, but other than that, yeah. Sorry, Laura, go ahead.
2: In terms of no, and and it's all of that is, is um, absolutely great advice in terms of, sticking oh with in-ears, especially if it's a deep-fitting in-ear monitor, which we always recommend to get a deep and deeply fit in-ear monitor because that will help improve the seal, which helps block out more of your ambient sound, which mm-hmm. allows you to turn the sound at a lower level, which allows you to preserve your hearing. The, um, the ability to use in-ears as a way to help preserve your hearing, and I always have to say, always that that is not a given. You have to make sure you learn how to use them safely. For
1: sure,
2: um, totally outweighs any annoyance that extra buildup of earwax will will um, cause you. And earwax, yeah, I would say anecdotally, people touring musicians that I see tend to have a lot more earwax, and I think it, it is because they they're wearing in ears. Uh, a lot more hours per day, people who wear hearing aids tend to have more earwax buildup because the ear cannot self-clean as it normally does when you're not closing up your ear canal. But at the end of the day, if you're managing your earwax buildup, um, that's that's all you need to do is manage it. And if you are somebody who does have quick buildup, everyone's different, sorry, but it's true. Some people can build up earwax in a few months. Some people, it takes them a year or more if you're on the road, let's just say you're going to be on the road for six months and you're like, there's just no way I can see any healthcare provider to get my earwax removed. What I would say is before tour, have somebody, have a professional clean out your ears and then you can do the maintenance on the road with over-the-counter eardrops and like once said, warm water. Uh, and and again, you kind of have it figured out, let's say you build up earwax so quickly, then maybe even once a week, you do the over-the-counter eardrops, which dissolves the earwax or softens it. And then they come with these little squirt bottles and you can rinse it out. And that's really probably the best thing to do on tour. But I would never tell yeah. somebody to stop wearing in-ears or earplugs because of an earwax yeah, buildup sure. problem.
0: Yeah, and back to your your your, I'm gonna make it less clinical for a second. Your question about Q tips and kind of that that like dichotomy of like, well, they tell us not to stick stuff in our ears and then we're sticking stuff like <laughs> two millimeters from our eardrums every day because it's the ear the in monitors. So q tips themselves, or I should just say cotton swabs because they're sure, sure. like saying Kleenex, right? We're sponsored by um, them.
1: You have we have to say I that. know, Get right? It. Johnson
0: and Johnson <laughs> brought to you by that label that says don't put it in your ear canal. It says so right there, like Juan sure. said. And the reason that That cotton swabs are bad is that they are cotton and cotton is a natural substance and your ears reaction when a natural substance is getting in there is to fight it off. And your ear only Hmm. knows one defense mechanism, which is building wax up and your ear takes weeks or months to build wax. What happens while it's building wax, wax is coming out of little tiny, just to get gross for a second, it's coming out of little tiny pores in the skin of your ear canal and it makes your skin itch while it's building wax. Then guess what people do? They say my ear itches. So they put it in a Q-tip and they try to get rid of it. The reason why in-ear monitors, earplugs, all of that is different hearing aids as well, any kind of foam earplug or anything like that as well is because they are synthetic materials. So silicone in-ear monitors are made out of medical grade silicone, medical grade silicone, excuse me. Uh, acrylic inner monitors are just inert plastic, right? Uh, Foam mirror plugs are just whatever polybicarbonate, whatever, I don't know what they make them out of, mattresses that they found, <laughs> assumingly clean. Um, so all that material does not That's give disgusting. the ear the same. I'm so sorry. <laughs> right? That was the disgusting part. I described the earwax uh, extrusion. Um, I don't know. I used all of those is materials. <laughs> <laughs> But these materials don't cause the ear to have the same natural defense mechanism response of building wax. Mm. So the only wax that you're actually getting is the, every time you put the ear ear plug or in-ear monitor in, it is acting a little bit like a plunger. It's just taking the outer layer of wax that's naturally formed and it's just pushing it inwards. So the best thing to do whenever you take the in-ear monitors or plugs out is wipe them off quickly with a dry paper towel or something. Just wipe them off really quick. And that way the next time it's getting in there, it doesn't have as much dust and dirt and things that mm. the ear hates and thinks that it's being attacked. And that's gonna help the most. And then all of the other fantastic clinical recommendations of Juan and Laura.
2: <laughs> Frank, thank you. I I didn't I had admittedly never thought about the natural material portion of yeah. why we shouldn't use q-tips Thanks, yeah, was We've taken the,
0: two, yeah. <laughs> the two brilliant things that i know and i've i've used them both up during this one hour
2: i mean that's really awesome and i, I as you were talking i was trying to i was thinking why do we call it ear wax earwax it's not really that waxy it's sticky it should be called something else like ear goo <laughs> I think why do we call whack. it wax
1: it's super no, mean, that's so we funny we should think
2: of a different name for that just like ear I think on one of the notes something. Chris yeah. Heather had, oh yeah that's your, there you go right.
3: maybe. <laughs> maybe oh that ear works. juice
2: my sister who's in the background put yeah. said ear juice ear
0: juice ooh oh I just actually I'm I'm gonna quit audiology because of that one sentence <laughs>
1: <laughs> the moist ear juice
0: <laughs> oh <laughs>
2: My <laughs> colleague said he's gonna quit audiology, Sonia
0: <laughs> yeah. yep she just she caused that
1: <laughs> it's amazing um Oof. we're we're up against the proverbial clock uh but um I, I was thinking about this, right so there's more questions there's obviously places we could go get deeper um we talked about this a little bit before we kind of got on uh both of uh, all three of you sorry um. While there's, there's likely going to be audiologists who listen to this episode and audio engineers, primarily audio engineers, mm-hmm. um, I hope some audiologists, uh, other audiologists will listen to this and and, and learn more about our industry. Um, and I know you guys are working on this, but what's what's one thing maybe from this conversation just, or just in general as a PSA that you would give to audiologists who maybe aren't as tuned in with <laughs> no pun intended, Um, with, 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 with our community. um, And then what's something maybe we haven't discussed that you would like to give as kind of a PSA or, or whatever to our audio engineering community. So I'll, I'll I'll take it to you first one.
3: Sorry. (laughs) Uh, PSA. Gosh. Listen to the musicians. Care about their ears as much as they say they do, and do what's right. You know, she do what's right. Sometimes it's as though nothing ever happens, but that's okay because you know we can be the gatekeepers to something very, very special and unique and meaningful for this community and for the population and for us being part of it. It's something that we take extremely seriously. And so, yeah, I think that's what I would say. How
1: about about to the audio community?
3: The audio community? I mean, if it means that much, I'm sure that it does. You know, at least getting an understanding, an idea of where someone's at is, you know, something very wise to do Um, if you're using your ears and it connects you with what they love to do you know finding someone that can make sure that it stays that way I think is uh, something that's uh, genuinely important and in the long run will uh, mean a whole lot more than maybe it does right now but You know, there was the question that you had said, you know, when should someone see an audiologist? I think as soon as they think of that question in their head, Mm -hmm. you know, not even, you know, asking someone, it's just, you know, as soon as you have that thought, no, no, I think it's it's probably time. So yeah, that's what I would say.
1: Cool. Frank.
3: Yeah,
0: I I like that. Um, I would, I, I say the same thing to every like audiology group that I get to talk to about this, which is offer a hearing test to every patient because the person coming in to see you, whether they're a musician or not, they're a patient who's coming in to see you and it would be unheard of for, and and this is kind of the way that I would like to, any audiologist to think about this. It would be unheard of for you to just bring a person in not test their hearing, give them some kind of service and send them out the door. Mm. You would always test their hearing. The musician is a patient, whether or not you've heard of them, whether or not you're, they give you a ticket to their concert. <laughs> it doesn't matter. They're still a patient. So test their hearing, offer to test their hearing. And then on the flip side of that, to the audiology community, ask for a hearing test because very often, uh, musicians, engineers, you find yourself going into an audiologist's office to say it with me, get ear mold impressions impressions. while you're there. Ask, can Mm. I get a hearing test? That's it. And I didn't mean that to sound so pedantic right there, but just really like, just ask, can I get a hearing test while I'm here? I see you have a sound booth. Do we have time? They may ask you if you have insurance coverage, all that kind of stuff, but that is sure. a conversation you need to have because if more audio if more of the music community was asking for hearing tests and more of the audiology community was recognizing that this is something that the music community wants, we're going to be ch- making bigger changes cuz the change is going to happen in the room one-on-one. That's where that's where the conversation really lives.
1: It's awesome, Laura.
2: for any audiologist listening, there's a delicate balance, I think, when you're working with a musician, or especially a sound engineer, of remembering that you you do know more when it comes to the auditory system than most musicians or sound engineers, simply because we've had the education. And at least in the sound engineering schools I've went to, and I've gone to undergrad and master's you learn very little about the auditory system so put on your um your thinking cap and don't work you can talk about the technical parts of what we do beyond what you would talk about with a traditional mm. patient and probably the musician certainly the audio engineers will really appreciate that that they will understand it Um, But there's also, I I would say, try as best you can to offer that information and knowledge without applying it in a judgmental way. Because I've heard lots of Mm. stories where an an audio engineer goes to see an audiologist who is like one said, a neighborhood audiologist, and they'll say, what? You practice it at, like a drummer. You you play at 100 dB, well, you've got to mm. turn it down. And right there, the trust will be broken. There will be no trust. Mm. And they're going to think, yeah. like, who are you? Like, how can you know nothing? <laughs> so that is an example of, you know that 100 dB, 15 minutes or more, can potentially cause permanent hearing loss. So you can provide that information, but leave out the, you've got to stop doing that. That's the judgmental part where mm-hmm. you're judging that that's bad. Um, and then I would say um, for the audio engineers, it it is ideal to see, um, to get a baseline hearing evaluation, which is most importantly your threshold of hearing test, including extended high frequencies. It's ideal to be able to see an audiologist in person because you will have a clinically validated, calibrated diagnostic test.
3: Mm-hmm. But...
2: We are all available on Tuned, which is a very new, innovative um, teleaudiology and hearing healthcare company. All three of us are available there. Um, Dr. Heather Maliak is available there, and really the best music audiologists in the country, and I would yeah. say in the world, most experienced certainly, are all available for you to see on Tuned. And while a threshold of hearing tests is important, I would argue that understanding things like frequency response of an earplug and how that may or may not impact what you're doing with it, learning about the basics of the auditory system, the things that we touched upon today, learning about those things is um, probably more important, especially in the beginnings of your journey for um, improving your hearing health or preserving your hearing, than just getting the full diagnostic test. In an ideal world, you have both. But um, yeah, you can make appointments with all of us on Tuned. Great job bringing it back,
0: Laura. And (laughs) and (laughs) if you are listening and you enjoyed listening to us for one hour and you found this to be valuable, imagine if it was (laughs) one-on-one. (laughs)
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. um, well, we, so we'd be remiss. I, I meant to do this in the front end because in case nobody makes it to the end, but oh well. Um, um, Heather uh, had teased that there's something pretty cool happening. Laura, can you speak into what uh, she told me about?
2: Yeah. So, something really exciting is that Music Cares, which is a part of the Recording Academy, which is who creates and does the grammys and um, music cares is a nonprofit and w- music cares and tuned uh we have a partnership and it's groundbreaking because they have for a long time provided certain musicians with custom hearing protection but the care component has always been missing and that's not to um, criticize them at all that's kind of even what audiologists do again they fit they take the ear mold impressions and fit the earplugs or inner monitors without often without the care component so music cares agrees that what um, learning about all of these things having tailored individual information for the musician is important and um, you can I think apply to be um, to work with music cares and they help musicians get appointments with us through tuned. Awesome. So, yeah, it's really exciting because, again, that's the reason why it's so exciting is it's going beyond the device or beyond the piece of gear and introducing the knowledge and education, which, again, you know, we do need the earplugs. But if you don't know what's appropriate, the earplug may just sit in a drawer. <laughs>
1: Sure. Yeah. And, and as more of that develops, I'll make sure we spread it amongst our communities and stuff like that. It'd be cool to see, you know, to see how that develops. Um, yeah, no, I mean, this is, this is so cool. We could obviously, uh, keep going on in so many areas. I appreciate you guys. Please, uh, check out, um, Frank and, and Juan's, uh, podcast. Uh, I'll, I'll put links in the show notes for it, but it's called talk. Thank Gears. Um, and uh, and then Laura actually didn't. So you guys had a um, a YouTube video with Michael and you and Heather. Was is that a continue? Is it a continual series or who who was that for? Um, yeah, that
2: was actually for this week in hearing. So it's a comp- it's pretty much all audiology focused, and it mm. was great. It's I think one of the better. Um, listened to slash views so it's a weekly podcast for the audiology community yeah and and we interviewed michael and i think you can either go to this week in hearing Mm. or just google like michael lawrence
1: yeah, I'll, I'll put a link in, our, in, our, in our description oh, cool. of the of the exact one for sure. Yeah, and then yeah. He, and he and he so Michael actually came and saw you, um, yes. right? Um, and he did an article for Sunway, which I actually just posted to on our Facebook group, and oh, cool. I'll put a link. I'll put a link to that as well. So, um, and uh, yeah, you have no
2: excuse, Chris. You got to know The door is open.
1: I know, so I, it's, yeah. I, I said this to Frank as we were getting this episode together. Like, so Frank lives within 30 minutes of where I live, basically. Uh, and uh, and I offer mobile services. S- yes, I um uh, uh-huh. no. To I mean, I, th- what I wanted to close with is, I mean, <laughs> if we're breaking down stigmas here, I mean, look, I, you know, I personally have not seen an audiologist uh, since a perforated eardrum damage I had about five years ago. Um, because of the ego side of things, I, I was afraid to, um, either know or admit or have other people know that I may or may not have, you know, long, long lasting damage. Um, and that's, that's not right. Uh, I need I need yep. to fix that, um, and um, and so I need to get over that, <laughs> and uh, and so part of that needs needs me to go. I need to go see Frank, and uh, and and I need to um, practice what we're preaching here in terms of encouraging everyone to go see other audiologists. So uh, I, I guess actually the last thing I wanted to say was, um, you know, Heather has said this. You guys are saying this. There obviously are audiologists who are more focused towards musicians and or audio engineers. How? how should a person go about finding that, that, um, cause there's not many of, y- of y'all. So how, how should someone go about finding that person?
0: That's such a good question.
3: Yeah. There's a I couple like of can resources. Name yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, go for it. I can just name drop a few people. Some friends of mine, Brendan Fitzgerald. He's in New York. Um, who else is there? Caleb Cronin, who is in the Colorado area. Uh, Michael Santucci, of course, who's in Chicago, along with uh, Shannon Switzer. I'm in Chicago as well. Laura, you're also in New York. Who else is there? Matt Bell, she's the one who taught me. He is now in Arizona. Sensophonics, the Gold Circle uh, community, they're the ones who have specialized training within the musician's clinic protocol and everything, so they're well versed and well trained to be able to cancel and work with musicians and sound engineers. They know what they're doing. They know what they're talking about. So just a few uh, name drops. There. Yeah. But and you can Google one, one Sensophonics
2: yeah. Gold Circle. Mm-hmm.
3: Gotcha. Yeah. Okay.
0: And then, you know, there is something like, I don't know, something like 15,000 audiologists across the country. Uh, Heather has often said there's six, Music audiologist, I think it's a little bit more than that. I think she's being a little, <laughs> little exaggerated, but that's okay. I feel like there's probably one in every major city that we can name uh, mm, specifically. Okay. So if you ask one of us, we would be happy to direct you. I just directed somebody over to somebody in Colorado, in uh, Denver area, because we just know these people and it's kind of a small network of, of people who talk. Um, but the other thing to do is call any local audiologist. Well, first of all, go see us on Tuned. We'll be happy to work with you there, and then we can work you through a local audiologist mm. to take care of the uh, the hands-on hearing testing diagnostic part, um, or go to any local audiologist and ask that question. Um, you know, do you do extended high frequencies? Do you follow the best practices that were published by the American Academy of Audiology for care of musicians' patients, which Heather and I were involved in the work of that um, a couple of years ago. Um, ask these questions. And if they say no, if they say what's an in-ear monitor, call the next one. That's all you got to do. No, <laughs> it's no judgment to them. It's absolutely no judgment to them. Everybody's got their specialties, but if they've never heard of what you need, go to the next person. That's how you would handle a, a music contact. Hey, can you play samba bass? No, I'm calling someone else. That's okay. Right. So that's, yeah, that's my two cents.
1: And for those who want to find Tuned, um, because I'll be honest, when I Googled it, it wasn't the easiest thing to initially find. Um, Tunedcare.com would be the address to go
2: to. Thank you.
1: So thank you all. I appreciate you hanging out uh, with me. And uh, this won't be the last conversation that we have (laughs) about uh, hearing health for sure. Thank
0: Thank you, Chris. Thanks for putting this together and having us.